This is Song. And this is Sarah. This is Effing Ethical, where we try to make sense of all the choices facing consumers every day. Excited to hear from you. And I just wanted to kind of hop on and introduce you because, yeah, I don't know. I can't stop gushing about you in my own head. And I feel like there should be a platform for me to say these things out loud. So... Well, um, yeah. that is very flattering and not at all deserved. Oh, it so is. All right. Well, don't I oversell say it. this piece. <laughs> <laughs> Impossible. Impossible. So I am so, so thrilled to introduce today's guest. Alexandra is a former classmate at the Yale School of Management and a current friend who is an investment associate. She's done all kinds of cool things in the values-based investing space which I'm sure she'll tell you all about today. The last time we saw each other in person, so this was on an early morning walk through East Rock in New Haven, and as always, you know, the most delightful, had to come to an end way too quickly, 10,000 steps together, and we talked impact, we talked heart, we reflected on the past two years, um, we reminisced about some of our fondest memories together of magical evenings in South Africa, Hashtag what happens in Cape Town stays in Cape Town. Um, kidding, but not really kidding. <laughs> She's not uh, kidding. <laughs> and Alexandra is, she's just such a master at facilitating hard conversations. And she's someone who chooses every word with so much care, um, whose words and actions carry so much intention and thought. And I am so excited we get to share her with the world. So welcome to the show, Alexandra. Well, thank you for having me. I don't know how to respond to that because you uh, you did exactly what I told you not to do, which is you overflowed <laughs> me. <laughs> and it's all downhill from here. Uh, but I, I'm a huge fan of your podcast. I listen to it every week uh, when I'm doing data work, and it makes the work so much more interesting. So I thank you for providing your insights and your entertainment, and I'm so flattered uh, to be on with you today. Thank you for coming on. We're so, so excited to have you. And I'll let right. these two fabulous women take it away. Uh, so Alexandra, welcome. As Song introduced, we know you from school. I was lucky enough to be in the same class with you and recall that you come from more of an institutional investor background. So I'd love if you wanted to like briefly introduce kind of who you are, where you came from, and what your interest in attention to values-based investing is. Yeah, it actually started... A long time ago, um, when I was a teenager, my gateway drug to impact investing was microfinance through the Model UN. <laughs> and so back then, it was more of an academic interest. And then when I went to college, I studied abroad in Rwanda, and I met a bunch of entrepreneurs who were running social enterprises. And so I got more interested in that. Um, but at the same time, I witnessed a lot of things in the expat community in Rwanda that gave me pause and made me question whether I wanted to go into impact investing um, or development finance specifically, because I didn't feel like I had the right background or the skill set that was needed to do that kind of work. So I wanted to be really thoughtful about how I spent the early part of my career. And so when I came back to college, I was already jaded by junior year and <laughs> The answer to that <laughs> meant that I was going to do investment management. And so I kind of fell into that world and I became a research analyst at a firm that invests in hedge funds. And I didn't even know what a hedge fund was when I was a senior in college, but I joined this firm and I loved the people that I worked with. Um, they were so intentional and committed to the mission of the organization. Most of our client base was made up of nonprofits. And so that just gave me a totally different perspective about what the investment management space was. I think when people think about hedge funds, they have certain associations from what they read in the news or perhaps from watching the show Billions. And, you know, there is an element of truth to that. I mean, I think reputations are earned to a certain extent, but 
the hedge fund industry is largely misunderstood. And, you know, my day to day was spent with really intelligent individuals who felt great about the client base that we were working on behalf of. And so that was, you know, the first part of my career. And then um, I wanted to get exposure to other asset classes and learn how to manage a holistic portfolio. And so I went to work for a university endowment. And that's where I learned more about the private equity space and real assets. And what was interesting there is that part of my job was to go to annual meetings for private equity managers. And again, I think a lot of people have certain associations with the private equity world, and perhaps you're picturing people in dark suits and perfectly coiffed hair. And, you know, maybe that's the investment team when you go to these meetings, but the people that I was sitting with, <laughs> you look left and right and you look at their name tags, they're from foundations, they're from college and university endowments, they're from faith-based organizations. And it's just not at all what you would expect. And so I just gained this whole different perspective um, that really shaped my views and challenged some of the assumptions that I had coming out of college. Eventually though, I you know, decided that I did want to do impact investing. And so that was the time to stop and go to business school. So I'm I'm trying to sort of make the connection um, between this this idea of like what is private capital and kind of what its impact is and for me and my observation when I started working in development finance was like holy crap private capital is so has like there's so much opportunity right I think that when yeah. when we look at like the the world's problems, right? Like climate change, for example. Um, it, it depends on where you are in the conversation, but a lot of a lot of people in the development finance space or on the private in the private equity space are saying, "Hey, like there's tools that we can create specifically because we are private capital that public markets can't take care of, or governments wouldn't necessarily be able to take care of on their own." Um, and, and we can kind of, we can do this, we can be creative, we can take different types of risks. Um, and I think that that trend has always been what I like about the private capital side of impact investing, that there's a lot of, I guess, like a, a lot of opportunity to be creative, if that makes sense. And I think that your reference to, I don't know, like when you, when you think of institutional investor, you just think of this like gray space of like totally. I don't know like I, I almost think of them as like accountants I'm like institutional yeah. investor and accounting firm like they're just like the same people just sort of like yeah I don't even know what they're doing like crunching numbers but like you said the actual answer is that institutional investors are sometimes like faith-based organizations that have a lot to say about the impact that their dollars make for example yes um which so can you talk a little bit more about who who are these institutional investors and on the impact side, how would they fit into the impact investing world? Yeah. So I think there's an important distinction between asset owners and asset managers. So the asset managers are the people who make capital allocation decisions. They're deploying capital into individual companies. So if you think about a private equity manager, they are actively placing capital into businesses, but it's not just high net worth individuals that are investing in private equity funds. And it's not just the manager of those funds that is investing his or her own assets. Those assets come from limited partners and the limited partner base is largely nonprofit. It's not exclusively nonprofit. There's certainly for-profit asset managers in there. There are high net worth families. You know, a lot of them are university endowments, a lot are foundations and a lot are pension funds. And so when you think about the whole asset base, if you were to carve out part of those portfolios and say, you know, say 10% needs to be mission aligned, that's actually a really meaningful figure. The problem right now is just that I don't think a lot of institutional investors think about the underlying holdings of their portfolios or to have the intention to actually allocate capital to investments that are aligned with their missions. Yeah. Something that I've noticed in the work that I've done over the last couple years, um, and there, there's like good and bad things to this, but is that the, it, I wouldn't even say early, 
a trend yeah. towards mission-aligned investing from institutional investors has been into renewable energy, which I want to be clear, very positive. I am very pro-renewable sure. energy for the most part. But in 2020, renewable energy is like not high risk, high impact. It's like practically, I mean, it is a utility. It's connected into utilities. In many countries, obviously the US, Europe, um, even in many emerging markets, the structure around how a renewable energy project gets financed has like very secure returns. And so I always think it's really interesting when asset owners, so these institutional investors say, we have, you know, maybe it is 10%. It's usually not even that high, but we have some percent that we are focusing on impact. 80% of that portfolio is renewable energy. Um, sometimes it's in emerging markets and they're doing super high impact stuff. Like there are really cool early and mid-stage companies throughout Latin America and Africa and Asia that are doing very, very high impact um, things associated with renewable energy. But a lot of these are a little bit more like, no, they just own renewable energy assets like in North America. And that is their main, this big portion of their impact focused fund. Um, And I just, I I like that they're doing that. I just don't know if you can call it like the high risk impact portion of your portfolio anymore. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And the other thing that I would add is that it took a long time to de-risk those investments before you actually had institutional investors who were willing to participate. The idea that VCs took a bunch of risk on clean technology early on, and that's why we have electric vehicles now, no, that was subsidized by the government. A lot of technology today was subsidized by the right. government. Technology behind the iPhone, um, the internet, you know, risk is being subsidized by someone and often it's being subsidized in a by a public entity, um, but the gains are privatized. And that's not a new thought. I mean, that's well documented, but I totally agree. You know, it it is important to allocate capital to sectors where there are needs and climate change is certainly a huge issue. Um, But there are also a lot of sectors that are overlooked and there are a lot of communities that desperately need capital and impact investors just don't see the risk reward that they're looking for. Yeah. So I think that this, that actually brings me to like a side topic that's like related to some of the the items we listed before. But I think that based on, based on both of our backgrounds, I think we can kind of touch on this, which is, I mean, it's almost a philosophy, but the question is, is any type of investment in emerging markets considered an impact investment? Mm-hmm. And you don't necessarily have to like come out on one side of the argument or that of that or not. But I do think it's an interesting concept when you're talking about risk and return, because mm-hmm. there are certainly some countries where there are just a lot of risks associated with investing there. There's currency risk, there's political risk, um, there's just sort of unproven sector risk. Um There are investments which require government guarantees and the ability for the government to pay back. Like there's risks associated there. But to to the point that you just made, a lot of those investors that are working in emerging markets, they are doing everything they can to de-risk that investment. And they might not be taking those riskiest investments. So yeah, I don't know if you have any thoughts about just that. I don't know. Like I said, philosophy, yeah. right? That everything you'd be investing in emerging markets can be considered impact. Yeah, I think it's a really important question because this gets to how do you define impact? And everyone has a different definition that resonates with them, you know, for whatever reason. Perhaps it's based on personal experience, perhaps it's based on observation, and perhaps it's something else. But To me, impact is allocating capital to individuals, communities, um, geographies or sectors where it is needed and where historically it has not flowed. And so if you go by that definition, then allocating capital to emerging markets or perhaps to underserved communities domestically would be inherently impactful. I think, you know, one thing that's one thing that I've personally struggled with in the impact space is that when you have a defined set of of impact criteria that you use to filter investments and to evaluate opportunities, 
sometimes you're excluding businesses that you know, on the surface don't necessarily have an obvious impact story, but to local communities, they're very meaningful. So one example of that would be a grocery store in a rural part of say Arkansas, where I grew up, you know, a lot of areas are food deserts and people need access to nutrition. And you might think investing in a grocery store is not really a social business because, you know, if you look at ESG criteria, perhaps they're not necessarily doing anything innovative as far as governance, or perhaps, you know, they're not necessarily paying their employees above market rate, but people need access to basic goods and services. And so I would argue that that is impact by providing resources to small businesses, whether it's in rural communities in the United States, or if it's in emerging markets elsewhere, of course, of course, it is more complicated than, you know, the picture that I've just illustrated, but I do kind of fall on the side of, I do think it's inherently impactful to shift capital from areas where wealth is concentrated to areas where people need a mechanism to build wealth. Yeah, I, um, I actually really like that you referenced something that like you could relate to from where you grew up and like something that would be an asset to that community, because I've, I've often come down on the on the kind of the same side of what does an impactful investment mean. And I think that to your point, you as an investor potentially or likely sitting in North America or Europe, um, especially a large institutional investor, like the many types of organizations we've talked about, can you really say what's impactful to a small rural community? Um, and I think that there's a lot of, there's a lot of sectors that might get excluded from impact investing because of that, because there's this sort of expectation on behalf of the investors about what could be impactful or not. Um, I probably talk about this almost too much on this podcast, but I just think it's so interesting. Um, but like mining, for example, mm-hmm. or um, a gas powered power plant, like those are things that in the US we are pretty quickly shifting away from when we think about values-based investing on the ESG or sustainable investing side of things. We say like, we do not want to be investing in fossil fuels, but there are many places in the world where fossil fuels are offering really important power to entire cities or areas that need better consistent electricity so their economies can grow. And like on with mines, for example, that might be a huge employer. There might be really significant tax revenues back to the local or municipal or even national governments that can make a huge economic impact. But here in the US, like we would never say, or we would be unlikely to say, investing in like mining in the US is, is somehow impact investing, even if yeah. you can technically tie it to, to jobs. Yeah, I think that's right. And the other thing that I would add is, Northern countries have built wealth off of resource extraction from places like Sub-Saharan Africa. And so just understanding the historical context in which that wealth was created, now that wealth is concentrated in Northern geographies and we are in the position to make capital allocation decisions, it does reflect power dynamics to then say, well, all right, we want to deploy capital in places like Sub-Saharan Africa where we need to build up the business community, but we're only going to do it in certain businesses that fit our impact criteria. To me, that's just kind of icky. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, it's like, it we're going to dictate yeah. the types of businesses that we think are worthy, and you don't get to participate in that decision-making because you don't own the assets. Right, which... I mean, and that, I know that you you started to reference it, but this idea of there's a supply chain, right? Like who owns the dollars um, if it is, well, dollars if we're in the US, but like, you know, monies that they need. You might start with an endowment or, or a pension, but what's int- I feel like talking about pensions is interesting because I think more individuals can kind of relate and realize that like they benefit from or like they have direct impact to and from a pension. So like I worked for the US government for five years towards my pension. If I were to return um, at some point in the future when I retire, I would get a pension. 
And so there is money that my employer has put in that I am in the future looking forward to benefiting from, from that pool of money. So those pensions and how like they are one of those asset owners who are allocating this capital, right? So like that's kind of where you might start with it. And then you've got the asset managers, like you mentioned. Um, I kind of love thinking about them as white men with slicked back hair, not because they all are, but because they often are. 95% are. (laughs) Um, And then, and then you've got the, like what happens next. Right. And um, not to complicate things and, and get too into like, you know, jargon, but you often have fund of funds, right? So you might have like a pooling of all those investments somewhere in the U S or Europe. And then those might invest in smaller asset managers Maybe, well, hopefully, and I think we've actually discussed this, that we kind of like this model, closer to the actual things they're investing in, right? So you might invest in an asset manager in Kenya, for example. Maybe that's a venture capital investment or more of like a growth private equity, and they're doing some important investing in local businesses that they have a connection to because they kind of understand the local context. But within that chain, that doesn't always happen. You're not always going to local managers, which I think goes directly to what you were just saying about like, well, who gets to decide what's impact and how far removed from the community, the economy, are those decisions being made? Yeah. And a lot of impact investors are not comfortable investing in intermediaries or fund of funds, as you mentioned, because they feel like they might be forfeiting impact or they can't control impact outcomes because they don't have direct access to the founder, entrepreneur, or whomever. But I actually think it's a huge opportunity because one, you're building up local investment ecosystems. And two, instead of investing in one company, you have exposure to multiple. So I don't know. I just have a different perspective on that, but perhaps I'm biased because I did come from the fund funds world. Yeah. And I just really, like you said, I like the opportunity of like acknowledging that like there's things that we sitting in the US might be really good at. And that is figuring out structures that can filter or move capital from North America into other markets where, like you mentioned, maybe wouldn't have access to capital and do it in a way that there's some return, potentially modest return. I think that maybe that's something we should talk about, like how much money should you get back from an impact-focused investment? But maybe the thing that we on this side of the ocean or the equator, like however you're thinking about (laughs) this, unfortunately, the thing we might be good at literally is like getting the investors together and pooling that money. And then the thing that somebody who is sitting in a local context would be good at is identifying the best entrepreneurs or the best, you know, businesses that could benefit from growth capital and like why don't we work together to just sort of move that that money along and like do what we in our positions of power or connection or opportunity are, are good at doing. I completely agree with that. I think we are really good at constructing narratives that can sell stories, compelling stories about the investment opportunities that exist outside the bounds of where we're normally fishing. And we're good at constructing narratives because we have written the history books, but now is a chance to introduce new stories and mobilize capital and get people excited about opportunities that they might not know about. But people who have local knowledge are closer to the really attractive opportunities that exist on the ground. And if you were an investor in the United States and you wanted to find compelling opportunities to do community investment in Kansas, just picking that randomly, I wouldn't pay a New York investor to do that. I would pay someone (laughs) who lives and works in Kansas, you know? So I don't know why we apply a different lens elsewhere, but we do, and that reflects our own internal biases. Um, But I completely agree with what you're saying. Yeah. And I mean, so this is something that I know less about, and I don't know how much you know, which is like the US context. So. For my kind of personal work, um, I've 
shifted from like looking 100% international in kind of how I think about everything to a little bit more domestic, especially on the investor side. But I haven't focused a lot on um, the investment side on the US. And it, it one thing that I think is really interesting, and especially to talk about in 2020, is I think it's become relatively public knowledge if you're someone who's interested in the fair allocation of capital or how capitalism has provided certain groups wealth and taken wealth from other groups, specifically how things like venture capital or private equity as well have gone towards certain demographic groups and avoided other demographic groups. And I think that that's something that in the U.S. we're Yeah, I guess everybody kind of knows about that now because it's become this narrative. It is in all of our media. It has been a, maybe not a prominent, but certainly one of many stories um, that a lot of people have heard about in the last couple months. And um, I guess the question is like, if, if we as U.S. investors are literally so shit at investing in diverse investment managers and companies here in the U.S., Like, how are we supposed to be good at it internationally? (laughs) That's a great question. Uh, Uh, And I don't even, I don't have an answer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I think that there is starting to be at least a recognition now that there are, there's obviously a problem in the VC industry where a disproportionate amount of capital is allocated to white founders. We know that. And now there are a lot of VCs that are being managed by people of color and they are focusing on diverse founders. And you're now starting to see momentum where investors are making commitments to those managers um, because they're viewing this as an opportunity. And I don't know how that's translating internationally because it does, I'm not sure that there's as much of an appetite to invest in emerging markets right now, the way that there is seemingly more of an appetite to invest in diverse founders domestically. And I could be totally wrong about that. I'm just going off of what I read in the circles that I uh, run in. But I think it is a really interesting comparison. I'm always really interested in like, what can we do to shift that? And one kind of conversation that I've heard, not had myself, because I'm not a startup founder, but from startup founders, is how they're thinking about literally who they're willing to take capital from, right? So like if they are a diverse founder or um, even like a, a white founder, I mean, we went to business school that's a very diverse business school, but we still know a lot of like you know, affluent white people who started companies. We also know like a lot of people of color who are starting companies, which is really great to see just sort of that diversity represented in the startup community. But the question is like, if you're some sort of startup founder, I guess, how do you make sure that your values aligns with your investors' values? Because it turns out, depending on the terms, the investor might have a lot to say about how your company is run or grown. Um, And if you are looking at, so there's problems on both sides of this, right? So like you Mm -hmm. said, historically underinvested in like black founders. On the other side, VC has been historically white itself, right? Private equity, VC, finance industry in general. So what response, like where do you place the responsibility and is it everybody's responsibility to kind of move towards requiring their investors to think about diversity on their scale as well as the investors looking at their investments at startup companies or growth companies, we're not just talking about VC, to say we're going to make sure to invest in a diverse owner founders. It's really tough because If you are a founder and you're trying to raise capital, particularly seed capital, you're looking for the right partners, but you might not have a lot of options. And that's true of everyone. It's not just true for diverse founders. Um, But perhaps the investors who are looking at your company don't fully understand your market because it's not their lived experience. And so that might not be the right fit for you in the long term. But if they're making an equity investment, then you've transferred ownership. And if they don't re-up by the time you come to the next round of fundraising, that's a really bad signal to the market. So it's 
it's a really, really big problem to have. And I don't know what the answer is because I'm not an entrepreneur uh, or a VC, <laughs> turns out. Um, but yeah, that's a huge question. And, and at a certain point, you can kind of simply say that if you're someone with power in any structure, you should have responsibility for using that power ethically and thinking about what are the implications of, for example, the decision of who to invest in, right? Like how to how to allocate your assets. But, but I did think it's interesting that um, startup founders were having those discussions of it is a partnership, especially for VCs, that you want to make sure your values aligns with those of your investors. Um, but, but maybe you don't have all the options. Um, so it's kind of, it's, there's no like right answer there, I guess. I'm just, I'm glad people are talking about it. There's a lot of impact to making sure that groups who did not previously have access to funds have more access to those funds, regardless of the sector that they're in. You know what really disappoints me about the impact VC industry in the US? <laughs> what is that? So I'm not going to name names, but let's just Google impact, well, VCs that brand themselves as impact funds, they might have some mission statement about how they emphasize diversity, not in the founders that they invest in, but in the communities that are impacted by the company's product or service. But if you look at their portfolio companies, you actually don't see diversity among founders. And then if you look at their teams, particularly senior level members, it's completely white. And no, that is not true in all cases. I am grossly overgeneralizing, but I'm not that far off by making that statement. Uh, I feel comfortable saying that. (laughs) It just seems like a huge miss. It seems very tone deaf because historically impact has not included diversity until it became trendy and until it became abundantly clear that we have a wealth inequality problem in this country. Yep. I 100% agree. Um, I think for a lot of reasons, I similarly just am not super excited about the impact VC space, only because not that the things they're investing in are inherently bad. I mean, I think there have been some really amazing investments that funds in that space have invested in and helped grow and made um, just like big standard companies that you would think of, like Tesla, for example, like Tesla had a lot of impact focused dollars towards it and say whatever you want about Tesla, but like they are fundamentally changing how we think about and what the market looks like for electric vehicles and battery storage. They are making, they are like the player in that space, which is, which is really important. But I think that in order to find those companies that are going to return the type of returns that VC needs and have some sort of impact, you're you're just looking really narrowly. Like it's, it's gotta be something in tech most of the time. Like it has to have some sort of like technology answer to something. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing they're addressing is often environmental because those can be scaled. And I mean, there's like the existential impact of like, if we don't address climate change, we're all screwed. But there's also like in the short term, Okay, but also there's a lot of businesses that have really high social impact, but they don't necessarily, and they might even make you a a decent amount of money if you just, you know, lend them some funds, but they're not going to have that high impact growth that the VCs need. Yeah. Well, the other thing that this made me think about is, you know, it's not just equity that companies need. And so much of the narrative around impact investing right now is focused on venture capital. And venture capital is absolutely necessary because growing companies need equity. But there are also a lot of businesses that aren't really that scalable and they need debt. Equity is not always the answer, but the momentum around impact investing is very equity centric. And there are other financial instruments that companies need and perhaps they're less sexy, perhaps the deals are more complex, but that doesn't take away from the fact that's actually the more appropriate solution. And so I'd love for the impact investing world to evolve and start talking about opportunities outside of venture capital or outside of growth capital, and just talk about the fact that in rural communities, actually small businesses just need loans. 
you know, like it's hard to get people excited about that because an impact <laughs> the first question that people ask when they're trying to figure out how impactful a business is is what is your potential to scale and scale is such a buzzword and scale is important but not every business is going to become public not every business is going to scale beyond state lines but the needs are still very much obvious and that that just reminds me that there's so many there's actually a lot of organizations in this space so you're listening and you're like, is that even a thing? Are there funds like that? That's something I'm interested in. There's actually quite a few, certainly not as many, but people don't know about them because it's not sexy. <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. They're not new at all. They've been around for a long time before impact investing in the VC space became the trend. Um, uh, and, and actually yeah. some of those things are the types of products that like an individual could invest in. Right. So if you want to invest in a CDFI, you can do that. And there's this um, this company called C-Note that actually like makes it really easy to like do yourself online. And it's like really not sexy. You loan them a little bit of money. You invest a little bit of money. You get a really low return, if much of any. But your dollars go into a community and goes like directly to the type of stuff that you just referenced, right? Like it's going to small businesses that need loans so that they can buy more product so that they can like grow their business a little bit and serve more people. Like not huge impacts, but can have really deep impacts into communities and individuals. Um, But like not sexy. So nobody talks about it. (laughs) No, you're totally right. These are the opportunities that are actually accessible to people like you and me. I'm not a high net worth individual, so I'm not going to be making, I'm not going to become an angel investor and I'm not going to be an LP in a PE growth fund. Um, But I can buy mutual funds or I can purchase municipal bonds or C notes. And that's something that, you know, I think if more people knew about, would be really interested in. And you don't have to allocate your entire personal savings to that. You could just carve out a piece, say 10% again. Um, But this is what individual people can do who have a little bit of investable assets. Yeah, if more people knew about it, then uh, perhaps people would get excited (laughs) about it. (laughs) Oh my gosh, but could we? (laughs) Could we start a company and get some of those VC funds and promise them to scale an opportunity to invest in bonds that are somehow sexy and attractive to millennial investors. Could the mission statement be make bonds sexy again? Oh my God. Um, I think yes. <laughs> but I also, and, and this is just totally, and I'm sure you have this too, based on what you've worked in and the types of products you work with, you like get really excited about them. But I, but no um, one else is. Right. Or like things that no one's ever heard about. So yeah. last summer, my MBA summer internship, I worked for a investment advisor. So um, an investment bank that worked in infrastructure and renewable energy. And like you mentioned, so kind of a little bit of full circle here, the government has provided incentives that de-risked renewable energy investing. And one of the ways they did that was through tax equity, which I'm like, not even going to try to explain here, except to say, I really love debt products or products that look like debt, like kind of tax equity, um, that are really useful, (laughs) that like make this huge impact. Uh, But yeah, no one knows about it. So I'm not going to like make anyone, like you don't even need to look it up because tax equity is probably going away, at least in the renewable energy sector, because we don't need the government to subsidize it anymore. Turns out renewable energy got super cheap. And so it is relatively affordable to just kind of do it yourself. But I love the idea of making some like really boring debt products something really exciting that we could get individual millennials and like big tech companies to invest in. <laughs> I'm on board. You have me sold. <laughs> what are, are you looking at other things to do personally, but as you think about how you want to manage your own assets, mm. um, whether it's today or down the road, yeah. what's on your mind? Yeah. So 
That, that, that's such an interesting question. So I actually think that this really fits into like my philosophy of impact. And again, this is 100% because of like where I came from. So mm-hmm. the, the 30 seconds for the listeners who don't know me personally or haven't like, you know, found me on LinkedIn. So I was in the Peace Corps and had, you know, some really valuable experience there, but also saw the negative impacts of kind of unsustainably funded international development projects. I still believe that there are types of work in the world, wherever the money comes from, wherever the money goes to, that just have to be grant funded in order to sort of get to a certain level of viability. I 100% think that that is true, but I also saw just some really horrible incentives. I then went and worked for the U.S. government in development finance, but I wasn't an investor. So I was an environmental scientist and my role was this ESG thing that we always talk about. So what are the environment, social and governance risks or aspects of a project? And what I saw consistently was that some of the riskiest projects or riskiest sectors or potentially what you wouldn't think of as highest impact sectors um, could, could have significant impacts, right? Like I said, mines employ a ton of people. There are risks associated with them. Let me be clear. Most mines are in like really sensitive environments where there are endangered species and indigenous people and like a need for cultural preservation and I, I, not that that's all good, but there just, there can be impact, there can be jobs um, and there can be uh, some opportunity there. And then on the other hand, I saw some like really high social impact, like, you know, we've, we've checked all the boxes for how we do our governance and how our board is structured and look at the high impact we have from the types of things we're doing. And some of the other risks were like not even thought of. So maybe they, uh, their employees weren't allowed to unionize and they weren't being paid enough or there were health and safety risks um, that the employees or um, kind of stakeholders, people around the project uh, were at risk for. So I just always was like, okay, there, in my mind, there are very few, if any, sectors, regions, types of investments that are just like all positive or all negative. And so that's where my skepticism came from. (laughs) Um, I know that yours, yours was a little earlier. I was pretty skeptical when I came back from the Peace Corps about anything international development. I wanted to know about other structures, other frameworks, like you said, frameworks that actually like look to local communities to decide what is impactful for them. And so, yeah, when I'm thinking about my own investments, it's kind of along that scale. So I, um, I've i definitely invested in some ESG funds because I think that that is interesting. Um, I think that some I'm more or less convinced of their thesis about why they've chosen these companies according to ESG criteria. And then on the other hand, I have just invested in, and, and to be clear, these are like really small amounts. Like I um, have, a you know, my modest portfolio of like retirement savings and the stuff that I've kind of invested and I've taken really small portions uh, using things like Robinhood to invest in like individual companies that I think I want to see them do well. I want to see them grow. My favorite one of those. Um, and, you know, if, if we haven't said it, yes, like, we're obviously not financial advisors, so please do not take any information we are saying as financial advice, just educational and kind of what we do and how we think about it. But um, I invested in Jumia. Do you know what Jumia is? I don't know. So Jumia is like the Amazon of Africa, and they went public, and then their um, stock like dropped very, very low. And there's just a lot of hypothesis about how the company might grow, how it might get acquired by some global competitors. But yeah, like they're just basically the Amazon of Africa. They're um, in a number of different countries and they're focusing on kind of the direct to consumer delivery operations business, um, which Africa needs. But on the other hand, if I could which this would be impossible as an individual, non-institution, non-accredited investor, I would love to invest in infrastructure in Africa that is going to actually support 
businesses like Jumia becoming more and more efficient at what they do. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a fun exercise to have a wish list of what you would invest in if <laughs> your high net worth and then yeah. the practical list, which would consist of bonds. Um, <laughs> no, actually, I, so I used to manage my own portfolio before business school and I didn't have that many individual stocks. I only had a few. One was a clean energy utility company, and that was actually my best performing stock. I lost really? money on a water company, so obviously you don't want to take financial advice from me. Oh my god! Uh, but I had you know a few names that were a small percentage of my portfolio that I kind of played around with, and yeah. um, you know something that wasn't going to be hugely impactful in case I got it wrong. But if I got it right, then great. And then otherwise, I was mostly in mutual funds, and my screen back then was basically, you know, reading financial publications like Barron's or the FT and just learning about the highest performing ESG mutual funds. And some were sector focused and some were general funds. And now looking back, I mean, I would say that, you know, my returns kind of went in line with the market. So on the surface, one could argue, well, see, you don't have to forfeit returns by emphasizing ESG features in your portfolio. But if you actually do some investigation, part of the reason why those funds perform in line with the market is because the underlying holdings are not that different from the market. Exactly. So again, not going to name any names, but if you did a quick search for ESG mutual funds, and let's say that you, or it doesn't even have to be a mutual fund. It could be an index fund or an ETF and you look at the top 10 holdings, you will find companies like Apple, Microsoft, and Amazon. And I'm not here to say that there isn't an argument to be made for including those companies, but this is where your own definition of impact really comes in. For me, it's not a compelling argument. Yeah. Um, for other people, perhaps it is, but to me, that just doesn't align with what I believe constitutes responsible investing. It's not necessarily irresponsible, <laughs> but <laughs> you know, I'm not in the business of being neutral. So um, now I have a financial advisor and I'm trying to talk to him about what I want and how I want to align my portfolio with my values. And I wanna do that in a really thoughtful way. And so one of the things that I'm toying with is going back to sector-focused funds, whether that's water, renewable energy, healthcare, biotech specifically, and just being a little bit more intentional about where I'm putting my money. Yeah. And I haven't gotten there yet because you can't transform a portfolio overnight. <laughs> uh, right. But those are those are the questions that I'm asking myself. So I think that talking about those, just like really quickly, those big tech companies, or they might call themselves tech companies, whatever they actually mm -hmm. are. Um, I, I heard something the other day that was just really, it, it was just very thought provoking for me on like how to sort of judge those companies, which is 20 years ago, whether you were a true like internet company, like Facebook, which that wasn't even around 20 years ago, but, or you were actually producing um, a, a good hardware like Microsoft or Apple, um, the, the impacts were pretty straightforward. You've got, if, if you are actually making a product, then what's your supply chain, right? Like that's kind yeah. of the key question. And then otherwise you employ people. So how are you treating them? How are you paying them? And the implications of what each of those companies has become over the last 15, 20, 30 years, 40 or whatever, 40, there's definitely none of these companies were around 40 years ago, but 30 years ago, um, it's just changed. Right. And I think that the thing I heard the other day was literally like in reference to Facebook, which is a little different because they weren't necessarily pr producing a good, although they have now, right. Mm -hmm. They've got like a, video call product thing um, was there was just this idea that anything that was the internet couldn't possibly have any negative societal implications. And that's just 
we know that not to be true now. And so the question is, we know better in 2020. So are these companies thinking about their negative impacts when it comes to the internet, just in general, there's like a lot of stuff going on there. Are they thinking about it in terms of how they're treating their employees, um, how they think about contract work versus full-time work, and whether there's sort of a fairness between those different types of, of employees. And yeah, and, and I mean, I, I think that to that point of maybe why, if you were going for kind of positive impact, why you wouldn't invest in some of those tech companies is because the answer is largely no. <laughs> the answer is largely like, I thought I was doing something good for the world and I'm not prepared to deal with the consequences that there might be negative impacts to what I've done. Yeah. Or perhaps you do think that Apple's products have been transformational in really positive ways. But then what about the question of don't they need to pay more taxes? <laughs> you know, so I mean, it's complicated. I don't have an issue with Apple. Uh, personally, I don't yeah. invest in it. But you know, you could be really strong on the E part and really bad on the G part, mm -hmm. or you could have E and S, but no G, yeah. or some combination. Well, and what more common, the way that the ESG ratings are is high G because it's mm -hmm. a relatively low bar or sh shallow bar, I guess to sort of not mm -hmm. qualify on the G side. Um, I was, because I was interested in kind of the different ESG funds and how they're thinking about things. Um, and I, I don't even remember which company, so I couldn't tell you if I would, but you can find this information by searching pretty easily. But at least one ESG ETF does not include Berkshire Hathaway because they don't have an independent board. And oh, like, that's fine if that's your requirement, but... Yeah. Like that was it. Like that was like the one reason why this company that's otherwise done very well. And I think people don't see any specific negative thing about the company. That's why it's not on these ESG ETF funds, which I thought was really interesting. And the the other thing that was highlighted over the summer and what they found was in, in the first few months of COVID, ESG ETFs were faring much better than other funds, which, which is good, right? That yeah. should indicate that they have thought about something. They have de-risked something that is happening in this pandemic. Yeah. One of the things they found specifically because of what you just referenced was most of those funds have an even higher weight to high tech companies who don't rely on lower paid workers because they're contractors. Yeah. And because of like that reason, they weren't as negatively impacted by the pandemic which is like crap. Like yeah. <laughs> the fact that a company did better because they have said this level of worker is a contractor. And so we can like cut off contracts, we can cancel contracts, but like we don't have the same impacts to our overall net value is a horrible judge of how an ESG ETF has done. Um, I mean, it was kind of a bummer too, because a lot of people got excited about it. Um, and a lot of people, sophisticated people, were citing it and posting on LinkedIn and writing articles about it on different platforms. And then when you actually dug in and did some diligence, it revealed what you just described. And that's the issue with trying to construct a values-based portfolio. There's always more to the story than what appears on the surface. And the reason why the investment management industry exists is because some people get paid to do this full time and yeah. <laughs> others just do it recreationally. And the problem with doing it recreationally is that, you know, you probably don't have the amount of time and attention that you need to actually understand what you're putting your money in. And that's, you know, that's just the reality, which is why I, I think for me, I want to be, I want to observe certain principles that I have. And so I want my portfolio to reflect that. But I also want to acknowledge that it's really hard to have impact through public companies. Mm -hmm. And well, especially with the size of portfolio that I have, um, if it's not clear, we both just graduated from business school. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I would like to mention that like my net asset value is negative. <laughs> um, because of those finance courses that you took, right? If you were to do a DCF on my expected lifetime income, I would probably come out positive, but yeah. not if you just look at the year 2020. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, I mean, look, I'm probably never going to be high net worth, let's be honest. But we've been largely talking about public equities and, and mutual funds or ETFs. It's really easy to invest in a community investment note. You don't even have to have a financial advisor to do that. It's literally a $20 minimum. Again, not a financial advisor, so I'm not saying that you should do this, but read up on it. And if it's something that you find to be attractive or aligned with your definition of impact, then I think that's that's a really interesting opportunity, which means like if you want to have a values-based portfolio and you don't have a large asset base to invest, you can put the majority of your assets towards equity. Again, not saying that you should, but if you want equity exposure, sure, do that. But you can also carve out some space and have different exposure to investment notes or municipal bonds. There are other options. So if you're feeling overwhelmed about picking um, funds that, you know, on the surface might seem impact oriented, but then underneath reveal themselves not to be, there are other options. Yeah. And I mean, I think that you just highlighted really a kind of a challenge in the retail impact investing market, which is in order to even have a financial advisor, you need a certain amount of assets to kind of make that worth your time, right? Most financial advisors aren't experts on values-based investing. They, They might have a portfolio that they have put their perspective on how usually ESG or SRI, so environment, social, or governance, or socially responsible investing, how those criteria might filter into a portfolio. Um, and, and they might have those available for you. But there's you, you, would ha- you have to really look to find a financial advisor that is kind of an expert on this. Um, there are some, um, and, you know, I think that we can link in the episode notes to some sources that sort of highlight, like, here are, here's how you might find one of those, or here's how you might find a community investment note. Um, again, not to direct you towards any one, but just sort of show you, like, where you can find these sources. But yeah, if you're younger, um, sort of just not at that point in your career, don't have as significant of savings, it is just a really hard place to figure out kind of what the first steps are and how you can make the most impact for for your dollars. And yeah, I mean, I think that like you said, you can thinking about it as a small portion of your investments can be can be one way that you can do that, right? And just sort of think about what is the impact I would like to make with this small amount, it might even be a small enough amount that that you would think about donating. And so that's kind of one way that I like to think about it is like, I could probably invest that amount of money in something that feels new that I just want to check out and, and figure out what this product does um, and, and see how it works, see how the returns are compared to some other things. Um, but, but yeah, I, I think that just to that point, it is a challenge because it's just not as accessible, right? Um, we kind of said it without saying it, but ESG, SRI, ETFs or mutual funds. So any of the things that you would find really easily accessible on um, something like Robinhood or other brokerage accounts, it's hard to figure out which one of those to choose and what is the real impact or ESG criteria that's underneath those. And, you know, we don't expect, you know, anyone listening to this to, to figure that out, but just to encourage you to like, if you're interested, think about it. Yeah, I kind of think about it like you were describing as a complement to charitable giving. So for a lot of people, um, you know, if you are a religious person, perhaps you tithe and, you know, maybe you give 10% of your income to your church or to charities of your choice. In addition to that, or in tandem with that, perhaps you embed impact investing into your giving. And, you know, with investing, that money comes back, but perhaps you recycle it and you continue to place it in communities that need it, whether that's through a CDFI or something else. I would like to see more people thinking about that. Thank you, Alexandra, for joining me in talking about impact investing. I hope we can have you back to talk about other topics, but your kind of experience and knowledge, especially from the 
institutional investor side was really good um, and useful because I just really don't have that. And also so interesting to hear about kind of your, your personal journey and how the things that your own savings or investment dollars does is, is important along with having this, you know, professional interest in impact investing. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I hope that your ratings and uh, listener base does not take a dip without song. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I really enjoyed the conversation and you ask really, really good questions that make me think and perhaps I did not provide insightful responses because I'm still chewing on uh, such good questions. Uh, but yeah, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for listening to Effing Ethical. Check us out on Instagram at F-I-N-G Ethical and on our website at songandsarah.com. We'd love to hear from you. What industries or systems do you have questions about? How are you making ethical decisions in everyday life? 2020 is hard and we would love to hear about how it's going for you. Thanks.